Welcome to the Dante or Die podcast. Hello. Hello. I'm Daphna. And I'm Terry. And I'm really looking forward to this episode because you're going to hear from some people that you might not always hear from on a traditional theatre podcast. When real sites are a key part of the project, local business managers are sometimes the first person you contact. Yeah, and it can be quite tricky to convince them sometimes, right? Sometimes it could be tricky. And somebody who knows really well how to do that is John Luther. One of our favourite people in theatre. Hi, John. Hello, how are you doing? I'm good, how are you? Really well, thank you. Yeah. It's so great to have you with us. Yeah, it's lovely to be here. So, what do you do, John? So, I'm the artistic director of a little art centre in Reading called South Street Art Centre. Mm-hmm. And I've been there for about 19 years now, so quite a while. Wow, 20th anniversary next year, you're going to have to have a party. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> and about a decade ago, you started Sightlines? Yeah, so um, I'd uh, been seeing quite a bit of work that was in non-theatrical spaces, non-theatre spaces, and uh, wanted to bring them to Reading. So I, I brought a couple of couple of pieces, one of which um, had quite a big impact on our audiences by Laura Mugridge. It was set in a camper van for five people at a time, one of Fringe First at Edinburgh. So I brought that, which was really easy to bring because she drove her camper van to South Street, parked outside and did that show. But I realised that um, that audiences had a kind of a heightened experience doing something different out of their comfort zone and really engaged with the work really interestingly. And so I started thinking about how we might um, kind of uh, bring more of that work, of course, but also maybe kind of look to do some work ourselves in unusual spaces around Reading. And around that time, I think that's when I met you, really. Exactly around that time. We were just developing I Do, weren't we? Yeah. We were developing I Do, which was a show that took place in six hotel rooms, and we asked you to find a hotel for us in Reading. That's right. Uh, We needed six hotel rooms on the same floor with one corridor. How did you do it? How did you convince the Malmaison to say yes? Well, this was quite an interesting moment in uh, my career. (laughs) So, so yeah, I just thought this sounds amazing, first of all. So that was uh, a big tick. Um, And then I suddenly realized... I didn't really have anybody else to do this. I had to go and do it myself. So um, so I basically kind of made a list of uh, hotels in the town centre that were easily accessible from South Street and thought for audiences and started going around them and chatting to them. Now, the first couple I went into, this looked at me like I was stark raving bonkers and were just not interested whatsoever. And then um, a new hotel had opened in a lovely old space near the station um, run by Malmaison. And before I went in, I thought I'd do a bit of research about Malmaison. And um, their tagline is dare to be different. Mm. So I went in thinking I might call their bluff on this one. So I went in, asked if I could meet the manager. Luckily, he was available. Um, And I chatted to him and just said, look, you know, you say dare to be different. I've got something different to pitch to you. And, you know, you'd given me really good information about it. I supplied that information, chatted to them. And they just went, yeah, let's do it. Literally on the spot, just said, let's do this. So um, they gave us six free rooms for the weekend. And why do you th- why do you think? What was in it for them? Well, it's an interesting thing. Reading is a funny old town because it's got a lot of head offices and almost all the hotel rooms in Reading sell out during the week but not at weekends. So I think we were a little bit lucky. He did say mm. to me if we were in Oxford, where it's the exact opposite, we'd have probably struggled to... For them to give us that, so they're a little bit lucky with, with that kind of specific thing, um, but uh, it also just opened in Reading, and they were quite interested in just kind of getting the local community engaged with the 
the venues as well. I mean, hotels, you know, usually it's people out of town booking to come into them. But of course, people visit relatives, visit friends in the town and maybe book. So it is worth getting the local town and the local community on site. So I think they were very keen on that as a new venue in Reading. And as I say, it wasn't quite as expensive for them to give us six rooms because I think at that point they weren't necessarily at full capacity at weekends. So a little bit of luck. I think what you're saying but is really the key to it because understanding every partner is different and the, our partner hotel in London said something completely different. They said, well, you know, the PR that we would get from uh, the writer, we had uh, reviews in uh, lots of newspapers, uh, the Metro and the Evening Standard and they said, well, we would pay a lot more to have this PR than we would earn from six rooms. So it's always finding what's in it for that specific partner, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's true. And I, I think they definitely used their internal Malmaison magazine. It was featured in that. So they did want to do a bit of internal PR as well, I think. Hmm. But yeah, I think they're just calling calling their bluff on their tagline. Was the, <laughs> well done. Was the, hit. Yeah. the other thing that we did at Hilton, um, the first time we did it, was that we gave them a, a show just for them. And they invited loads of businesses, local businesses in for the evening and they did like special cocktails and stuff. And they did a whole evening. It was just all uh, people from the local businesses that came to see the show, which was really interesting. It was a very different audience that we usually had. But they found a way to use it as a benefit for them. Hmm. Oh, yeah, wait a minute. Great. Thank you. I saw your mother in the corridor. She told me what room you're in. Well, how was that? Hmm? Seeing my mum. Yeah, no, fine. Long time, eh? Water under the bridge. So, you're here? Of course I'm here. It's my daughter's wedding. She asked me to be here. I'm here. Simple. Hope we can have a pleasant day. So do I. Not about us, it's about Georgie and Tundra. Tunde. What's he like then? Yeah, he's um he's very nice. And it's been what, six? Seven months. I've had stuff in the fridge longer oh, than that. You know, David, I've really got time for this. What do you want? Well, no jokes about cobwebs, I want to make a contribution. Oh. Oh, that's very funny, Maureen. I'm here, it's the right thing, she's my daughter. I don't want any arguments. I'm not arguing. Good. We can talk about it later, though. So even though it was really tough, it was a really tough challenge at the hotel to say yes. But he did it. And then it ended up being an absolutely brilliant partnership. And then he managed to get a self-storage unit and a leisure centre and cafes. And he's done more and more sightlines productions in loads of different locations in Reading. So we wanted to hear a little bit about how staging these productions outside of the theatre venue impacted his community. From all the 10 years that you've made shows in sightlines in unusual spaces, do you have like a really memorable moment to share? Memorable moment? Or three? Oh, I've got or so ten. Got so many. I mean, I do still has a very special place in my heart because um, because it was kind of the first large scale one we did. And I know the first Sightlines Festival that I did 
because it started as a festival before it became kind of a strand in our program. We did I Do as a kind of a preview, didn't we? And then Mm -hmm. we brought it back for the second festival in its full-fledged version. So it's kind of in my first two Silence Festivals, I Do was there. So it's kind of really important. And audiences loved it. They still talk to me about it now. So it had a kind of indelible um, mark on our kind of cultural landscape in Reading. So I think that really is important. Obviously, Jackson's Corner, the show we made about the store in Reading, it's really important because it's the first one we made ourselves with our own resident artists made in Reading. So that was really important. And the football club one as well because we've done it three times now and it has this incredible ability to bring in people that would never go to the theatre. So supporters of Reading Football Club come and love it um, and they don't really realise they're watching contemporary performance. They're just watching a show about their beloved club and they love it. So those three probably are the ones that have the biggest impact but take on me as well how could i not say take on me i mean it was such a big project and had such a big impact to all of your shows really i I like these other people don't realize they're watching contemporary theater i think that's a really great um ambition it's like theater by stealth or you're kind of sidelining your way into communities that wouldn't often do it and that's really joyous yeah um with things with take on me with having like full frontal nudity in the changing rooms and yet it's this kind of kind of joyous, quite fun show. Yeah. But at the same time, you can kind of push people and you can provoke people and you can get people thinking about things they might not always think about by these, this kind of work. What are the different reactions that you see with your, because you know your local audience, you're, you're often there at the door. Yeah. How do you feel like people respond to these kinds of productions? I'm always there at the door, I think is the... Uh, always always <laughs> there at the door. Um, yeah, I think, as I alluded to earlier, um, there is taking audiences into a place they wouldn't expect to to see a piece of work, see a piece of theatre, art, whatever it is, but in this case theatre, um, just raises the uh, the stakes, I suppose. And, um, and I hate, you know, you never want something to be a gimmick because that's awful. But if there's a really so- solid, strong reason to go outside your theatre building and do something, it can really excite audiences and heighten the experience and just leave indelible kind of memories for people. I mean, what I really like the, the idea that somebody will use Reading Leisure Centre for the rest of their lives or for the next 10, 15, 20 years, whatever. And almost every time they walk through the door, just smile because they saw a show in there. Hmm. Um, if they walk past Malmaison Hotel, they remember the show. And I think that absolutely happens. There are people wandering around Reading who go past sites where we've staged work and they go, oh, I, I remember that show. So it, it does have a strong response from audiences. And we do have a number of our audience who only come to Sightlines shows, which is quite interesting. Mm. But in the, in the general thing, we've had people who've engaged with us first with Sightlines and then then moved over into coming to the studio programme as well. We've had people from the studio programme definitely come through to Sightlines and become fans of both. So it's a very strong part of our audience development plan as well. After I do... We thought we had it nailed in terms of like approaching partners and we thought it was going to be really easy to get one for our next project. But it really wasn't. We had to take a completely different approach to convince lock and store self-storage units to come on board for our production. So now we get to hear a little bit about it from the other side when we approach somebody, what's going through their mind. Um, so I got to talk to Neil Newman from Lock and Store. Uh, he's sitting in their head office in Farnborough. Hi, Terry. 
Neil, can you tell me a little bit about what you do? Because you don't work in theatre, do you? I, I no, no. Sad, sadly, I don't. Um, I have a GCSE in drama. That's about as good as it gets. So, um, uh, so I'm managing director for uh, Lock and Store. We're one of the biggest and fastest growing self storage companies in the in the UK. Um, we've got about forty stores open today, and we're growing all the time. So. And we met. It was either 2015 or 2016, and I came into that head office where you are now and uh, had a bit of a weird request for you right you you did you did yeah we uh, we we get a lot of requests from kind of local charities and things um as most businesses do and we try to support where we can but um yours was very different so um it took a bit of head scratching and a bit of bit of thought to work out how we're gonna how we're gonna get this this to work but it um but it did and we're we're really glad we could help so i asked you if we could what produce our show handle with care um and we ended up working with you across three of your stores i think yeah that's right yeah you um you did it in reading and in, in berkshire um then we went to the south coast in Poole, and then up to harlow in essex so um with three three regional um so what did what did you think of the idea when we said okay we want to take over and walk through the whole place what were you what, what was going through your mind i so i, I was really intrigued i'm um I guess, like most of the the UK, I'm a, I, I, yeah, I go to theatre every so often. I'm not, I'm not a um, theatre regular, I guess. So maybe once every six months, something like that. But normally, to see one of the the bigger bigger shows, um, and this was something entirely different and um, really, yeah, really interesting. So we, um, on a personal level, it's something great to work work with at a business level clearly it was um a great opportunity for to support a local or several local um uh, theatres and get some local exposure both in terms of kind of PR and press but also probably more importantly just getting some people into our stores so they can see what we do um so it was, it was a great great opportunity for us so you came to see the show in reading uh, what do you remember about it i told my wife we're going to go out and go to the theater and she was all excited and then i told her it was in one of my storage centers and she was she was at first a little bit ah i thought i was going to get to dress up and do all these things so um but well as as i remember it was a story about two two individuals and how they went through their their life um collecting items and and storing items at at different key key moments in their life and how um possessions provoked memories and discussion and and um dare i say sometimes arguments over (laughs) um, where people you know uh things that have happened previously how it allows you to um associate and and connect with with possessions in that in that way i got to play a lock and store a manager you did. So I, I had the whole. Uh, I had the whole the uniform. I remember. Yeah. <laughs> so so <laughs> one one day, one day that might come in useful. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And what was it? Do you happen to remember anything about the managers who were in the stores with us? What were they? What were they having to deal with with us? <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah, quite a lot of logistical um, matters, I guess, around how you would um, how how you set up for the the various um, evenings because the each of the productions was held out out of hours, so we had you know, stores open all through the day, and then you had a really short window to to set up, and we had to deal with 
I guess lots of practical issues around customers coming in five minutes before we close to get into the unit that's right by where you've just set up and all of those those kind of things. But um, but but our managers are used to that. That yeah, they they're, they're used to dealing with with problems. That's what they're they're there for, and that they're 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 great at. At doing that so i remember there was one i think it was in reading actually where we we wanted to turn off all the lights on one of the floors and the manager there was just finding it really complex to like figure out how to do it because you never turn off those kinds of lights sure and it was really hard to figure out how to do it and like working with him and he was like well why do you have to do it and it was it was quite a tricky conversation yeah, I think I think I think that's right, and I think also. Um, um, but on the flip side, I think it gave our managers some exposure to you know, learning a bit more about their buildings. Quite frankly, because because we don't. Um, you know, you're absolutely right. We we run a pretty simple operation, and once our stores are set up, they don't have to touch anything like that generally. And it's all a bit. Um, right, what do I do now? Where where? Yeah, not not just probably not quite as bad as where's the fuse board. But I do remember we we ended up bringing in our in-house electrician to one one of the productions to help you help you do that and help you get ready for the evening and it's so incredible that a a business like you can take that leap and help us out so much because it adds so much more to your day and it's it makes life harder for all of your team i'm just thinking this podcast is kind of we're talking to theater students and we're talking to early career theater makers who might want to make site-specific shows if people wanted to come to you again like what would you recommend they say how do how's what's the best way to approach someone like you i think i think within yeah with with any business um they want we want to be involved in the local community but we get approached a lot so i think you've got to come to us with something different and something that's perhaps going to get you know, get get us a little bit of local pr um and clearly the thing that you were able to give us is delivering an audience into our store and one of the challenges for our business certainly is to to get people to see and understand self-storage now clearly um handle with care was great because it got to the heart of why do people use self-storage? They use it at key moments in their life. And um, when there's change and the whole story took you through all, pretty much all of the key reasons as to why people may use self-storage as a domestic user. So, um, so, so that was great. So that gave us a real opportunity to sort of showcase our, our business, um, in a, in an indirect way without being kind of, it wasn't just a brash advertising campaign. So, um, so yeah, but just come and talk to us is the answer. And we'll, you know, if, if we can help, we will, if we can't, we'll, we'll tell you pretty quickly if we can't because, um, um, perhaps why. So you can, you can learn from that. I guess that's one of the great things about the way you approached it was, I think you saw it as a partnership. So we worked together. It didn't feel like we were asking you a favor or you were using us as a as a PR tool. I, I, I think that's right. I think that's right because yeah, but businesses don't win by using um, charities and not-for-profit organizations for you know, PR because it just doesn't work. If you just, you know, sp- you know um, we talk a lot about greenwashing, but the same applies for charity washing, I guess, from businesses. But what we want to do is we want to make sure people know who we are and where we are so when they need us they know they know um who to call um and the way to do that is to support projects like yourselves well thank you so much for saying yes all those years ago um and saying yes again to chatting with us today it's really great to have your uh, insight yeah you're very you're welcome you're welcome thanks neil thanks so much bye now 
When we were creating Take On Me in 2016, we reached out to a variety of local groups. Amateur dramatic groups, community choirs, colleges, people who just came to an aerobics class in the leisure centre, to invite them to take part in our 80s-inspired show as our guest cast. One of those people who joined us was Sophie Gunn. What do you remember about that process when you came in at 17 into the Take On Me environment? I remember feeling like right I am a a serious actor I really remember the the (laughs) feeling of like this is my you know moment I need to treat this as a an audition and and uh, I remember almost taking myself a bit too seriously I think um um but then it was so much fun being in the in the room with the workshop audition I think we did something that then became the aerobic scene I think we did some sort of aerobics or something from my memory um and yeah it was just such a friendly nice environment to be in what did you do in the project? So I had loads of different roles. I was a ghostbuster. Um, I was a Patrick falling into the pool. Um, I think I might have done an aerobic scene at one point. So loads of different roles within the guest cast. Meeting and collaborating with Sophie profoundly changed our work. It took us to new audiences and it really challenged us. Mm. My parents are both deaf and um, in order to come and see the show, uh, British Sign Language interpreter needed to be booked and um, I think back when I was growing up there was hardly any performances that had interpreters uh, pre-booked I remember doing shows at school and having to you know it was kind of like well who's going to pay for the interpreter because the school doesn't often have the budget it's it's expensive to book an interpreter so it's quite quite a difficult one so never really went to go and see shows a lot with my parents Um, and I really wanted them to come and see the show. I thought it was a really different, unique show. Um, I knew my mum would love it because it's something really visual as well. There was not just about the words and the music that was in it. It was a lot about the colours, the the costumes, everything. And um, so, yeah, I thought it was, I really wanted them to come and see it. So I asked if we could book a sign language interpreter. And I don't know, I don't, I, I don't remember really having a conversation with you and Terry about what was your initial kind of thoughts or feelings when you first worked with was it I think her name was Jenny the interpreter yeah we booked. it was and I think it was it was such an like it, it was a real moment of change for us because we just thought oh wow Sophie's mum can't see it and I remember we brought Jenny in on a Friday morning and we spent the day working with her on how we could integrate her into this very complicated site-specific show and you were very much part of that conversation trying to explaining like the basics to us where would the audience look where would you place her how would we light her all these conversations we sort of did in a speed really speedy way Mm -hmm. do you remember that yeah any any audience member can stand anywhere but I know that my parents are going to have to be standing there I suppose what I would have liked them to experience the same experience as any other audience member which is I come in I place myself wherever I want to stand or sit or be in the room and see the show and and then obviously having having a bsl interpreter who's going to obviously be in a specific place they they have to be able to see them so it's kind of thinking how do we get the balance as well um which is something i definitely learned throughout doing the second tour of take on me as well it was a larger tour we went to six different places around the country and you were one of the performers in the show but you also had another role as an access associate. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, reaching out to um, deaf audiences in the local areas that we were mm-hmm. touring to, mm-hmm. trying to encourage them to come and see the show. It was definitely a challenge because 
firstly we were traveling to areas that I'd never been to I I wasn't familiar with so I made some videos of me explaining the show and sent them out to local um, deaf clubs or um, deaf community Facebook pages that were in those specific areas and it's it's me you know my face who I've never met these people before and I'm saying come and see the show and so it's like how I didn't know how likely we were to get people to come and see the show all I knew is I really felt passionate about you know the work we'd put into it to make something to make site-specific theatre accessible or as accessible as it could be. Sophie taught us so much about the language of British Sign Language or BSL. Because BSL is its own language and it's got its own grammar and structure and and syntax and so it's it's my first language so I I have an idea of how I would have translated things but for me to translate something and then another um let's say a deaf person or another um qualified interpreter if they were going to translate the same exactly the same song we could all translate it completely differently because just as an example me saying oh my name is Sophie in BSL grammatical order is name me Sophie it just that's the order of it that kind of gives you the basic idea it's a lot I'm not doing it justice in terms of how complex it is um but trying to think of ways to translate songs and things and and also think about what what fits in with the show like how how does it all look how does it all feel we're in different rooms in each in each leisure center we go into there's a completely different space and a completely new um place we're in and and trying to figure out okay where am I going to stand but then being able to be seen and and also looking like part of the cast rather than just oh there's someone signing in in the corner or there's someone standing in the in the side of the room signing mm-hmm. um I wanted it to be more part of the part of the show and I think that's exactly what you guys wanted as well yeah and I think I think we definitely achieved it I think I also appreciated a lot of comments and feedback from people saying that you know why have I never thought of that before or oh you know I think a lot it always inspires a lot of people to say they want to learn sign language Mm -hmm. and realistically it doesn't happen a lot of the time a lot of people they see a show or or they see someone signing and they think oh I'm going to learn sign language and they they normally don't go on to to commit to that which is a shame, but that's just the way life is, I think. Um, but I think what it does do is plant a seed in people's heads of, okay, we should think about doing that. We should think about, um, you know, not, you know, whether it's making their shows completely integrated or having an interpreter at every single show or having, you know, just booking an interpreter for some of their shows. It's It plants a seed and starts something. And I think that's really mm. important. And it's been so important to us that we look at the accessibility needs for each performance we do. So then, when we were developing User Not Found, we asked Sophie to join the professional team. User Not Found was different because we used captions rather than um, integrated sign language or having an interpreter. It's to do with um, them both being different languages with things like funding and budgets and stuff. It's it's always going to be impossible to make a show accessible for ev- you know everyone in every way in at every performance um, at the moment. And so, yeah, we had a focus group and because the show was on um, phones, so much of the show was on on the phone as well as being in the room. And if they're looking at an actor and then an interpreter and then their phone, yeah, we so we went with captions for that. 
And it's funny, actually, because recently, the most recent um, series of Stranger Things, their captions for the sound effects are really, really detailed. Mm-hmm. And um, people, I saw people talking about it online. Um, and I thought, oh, that's really interesting because that's kind of an idea that we were kind of talking about so long ago in User Not Found. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's, I prefer it. I think it's nicer to have that sort of detail in. Um, I think it's just nicer to do it justice in the captions. Just by saying high pitch and low pitch, for some people that will mean something, but for some people that haven't heard a high pitch or low pitch, it might not mean something. I remember talking about like explaining some of the instruments, like I think it was like a violin. And to me, it sounded like a scratchy violin um, and it was high pitched. But then using all of those words to try and convey something, to try and convey what was going on, and as well as what you can see in the room, as well as what you can see on your phone, um, that's what I wanted the captions to kind of include. Mm-hmm. I think for me, the biggest learnings haven't come from doing the projects themselves. They've come from watching how theatre altogether is kind of evolving to become hopefully more accessible. Some companies are doing it and starting to do it and you can see it's evolving. Using that knowledge, I think, is the learning that I would put back into those projects if if they were ever to happen again or if I were to go back and do them again. Um because at the time I, I was it was just me and I was I was trying to think of all these things and trying to understand how we could do this. And I think we can involve way more people than just one person. Um, you can have um, a BSL consultant come and work work on the project to um, make sure that the translations fit and and look good and make sense. Um involving deaf actors um, and involving other creatives that understand BSL to have it as more of a collaborative process for everyone. I also think, I, yeah, I was every time a show finished, I was like, oh my God, I did do it. And I'm, I'm really proud of myself. And I, I, did, I did well. I feel like I did well. I feel like I did the best job I could have done. I, sometimes I look back and I'm like, I can't even believe I did that. I don't, I don't know how I did that. Yeah. Listening to that clip again, it's really clear that working with Sophie has massively helped us grow as a company. She genuinely shaped what we do, mm. and we're so grateful to her and her family. So definitely you spoke to Chrissy Foster, one of our amazing community partners down in Poole, who she runs a choir called Bittersweet Harmony. She was quite busy when you caught up there, wasn't she? I'm in the car um, in Littlemore in Weymouth. Um, I'm loading up my stuff for a new room for my tattoo studio. (laughs) Chrissy took us back to 2016 when we asked her if Bittersweet Harmony would like to take part in Take On Me. I thought, yes, brilliant. Something weird, something different, right up my street. And uh, when I have to explain to the guys what we're doing I don't I don't give them any choice (laughs) especially with something as fantastic as this so we learned two songs at the end Uh, we all dressed up um, swimming costumes and ropes and we all wore these silly yellow caps uh, which we found hilarious obviously (laughs) and then we jumped into the swimming pool for the finale singing our songs as we were in, jumped in and we were doing all the sign language as in the swimming pool as well. 
Uh, we did a bit of sign language for both of the songs. People came back to me and said they walked out because it was um, fun till nudity. <laughs> yeah, they said it was, they were nude <laughs> like this. And uh, I said, oh, oh, that sounds exciting. Um, okay, that's that's different. Uh, there's lots of lovely memories. Um, I remember we were waiting in the sports hall and there's this uh, Jamaican lady called Durette who's 70 she found a ball and started kicking it about. So we started playing football while we were waiting to go to our places, you know. So behind the scenes, we, it was just so positive. We loved the total inclusion of uh, the people with extra needs community, um, the deaf community. Oh, it, they make memories for life. It fills your heart with joy. And you just never know what you're going to experience. And if you say no, that's you're going to stay the same. Your your choir will stay the same. It won't grow. It won't bond. Do you know what I mean? We are such a tight community now because we've had these experiences. Honestly, we'll never forget it for the rest of our lives. It was just amazing. Honestly, we still talk about it now. So the people we get to work with from the non-theatre world on our projects they massively impact the stories we tell and, and the shows for the better yeah it means we can't be lazy yeah. and expect people to know what we're talking about and I think it really pushes us out of our comfort zone yeah for sure it's why we love it isn't it thanks for listening huge thank you to John Luther to Neil Newman Sophie Gunn Christy Foster oh actually Daphne so if Chrissy was going to do a tattoo on you oh I don't what want would a tattoo it be? oh go on if you had to have one I'm putting a gun to your head There's you have nothing. to have a tattoo and Chrissy's putting it on your I body I can't decide on anything I would like to just paint on my skin forever this is just not me but which tattoo would you go for um a picture of Kylie <laughs> is what I would have expected you to say. Fun to it. We, we have the fun. Let's just do one without the fun in okay. case okay. you can't cut it. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Huge thank you to John Luther, Neil Newman, Sophie Gunn, and Chrissy Foster. As ever, if you want to know more about our work, do head to our website, danteordie.com. And if you've got any questions or thoughts about what we've been chatting about, then get in touch on our socials at Dante or Die, hashtag DOD podcast. You're so good at the hashtag. <laughs> A big thank you to our producers, Marie Horner and Erica McCoy. And to Yaniv Friedel for his brilliant music. And our wonderful Dante team, Caitlin, Lucy, Sophie and Catherine for all their hard work. The podcast was recorded at Phoenix Court and Soho Sonic Studios. And has been funded by Arts Council England. <laughs>